Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the New Zealand Initiative. And with me today, again, we have Professor Rima Vaithyanathan of Auckland University of Technology. We were chatting with her last time on some of the work she's been doing in the United States, looking at predictive risk modeling and ways of helping child protection services there make the right choices. So helping the case officers to know the, the particular risks that a kid is facing so that they are less likely to fail to intervene when they should have intervened and less likely to intervene in cases where they really shouldn't have. So normally there's this sort of terrible trade-off that Orenga Tamariki or Child Protection Services elsewhere face where they're either going to be damned for intervening too much and taking kids away that really shouldn't have been taken away from their parents or intervening too little and failing to intervene when a kid is going to be beaten to death. It's just horrible being in that spot, but technology can help provide better tools for the child protection officer who's trying to decide whether they're going to go out and send an officer in to help out with a family or whether they just, well, are best to leave that one alone. You can make both risks less likely, and Reem is doing spectacular work on that in the United States. In our last chat, we concluded with, well, a bit of a depressing story that the work that she's been doing in the United States was actually preceded by some work in, here in New Zealand, where it could have actually all started here instead of in the United States, and it all got killed through politics. So that's a bit depressing, but hello, Rima. Hi, Eric. I hope this is going to be a more cheerful end of the podcast than that start. But yes, unfortunately, that's the sad history. Well, I guess stepping back a little bit further, one of the things that I've loved about American federalism, they, well, they, it's cliche to call it the laboratory of democracy, but my God, you've got 50 states and then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of counties, each of which has an awful lot of autonomy to make their own choices. Like, it's all constrained by the, some things are federal jurisdiction, some are states, some things are left to the counties or individuals. But there's a lot of room to experiment. So here in New Zealand, you have to convince kind of everybody before you're ever allowed to do anything because local government has very limited kind of flexibility to do anything it's the most centralized system of government out there pretty much. Like even the UK is having a lot of experiments with devolution right now. New Zealand, it's all very centralized and has been increasingly centralized. So if you want to do anything innovative, you have to find the ministry. You have to convince everybody in there, convince the minister, make sure that it's politically de-risked because if anything goes wrong, it's national headlines. You just found one county that was keen on doing stuff in the United States. Exactly. It's, it's, it's amazing what you can show and then how you can scale it out. Like after you can build the case for it. And as far as what you're doing is solving a generalized problem, which we are trying to do, it's not county specific. Everyone has the same problem and we've and you're careful and thoughtful about having independent evaluations and being ethical and transparent and but protecting your innovation partners being very thoughtful my number one commitment is to the people of Pittsburgh they are not an experimental partner they are the people i want to improve 
outcomes for. So I am always focused on the agency partners we work with, but then there are independent evaluators who come in and ask, is this scalable? Is this translatable? Is this something that is a good idea for other counties to pick up? So it means that I don't have to have that hat as well. I'm always focused on improving outcomes for the agencies I work with. And it's awesome. It's in incredible environment in which you can really be dedicated. I mean, there's just a lot more researchers, of course, there's a lot more foundations who are willing to support this work. It's just an ecosystem which really supports innovation. So what happened when neighboring counties started to see the results in Allegheny? So were they looking to jump in on it? You'd done some work afterwards in San Diego, I think it was, or San Francisco? LA, actually. LA. LA. Yeah, so LA is now using it in a few offices and they're going to be rolling out. We're starting to do work in another county in Pennsylvania called Northampton County, which is exactly what you said happened. We were, there was an article in the New York Times about this work and someone there read it and contacted me and said, my county CEO says they want to do it. Oh, wow. So, We've done it. And actually, I'm now going to be talking to all the counties in Philadelphia who use the same system, actually next week, uh, to say, you know, we've now built it in a very, what we call like kind of reproducible way. So the tech is very reproducible. The tech has now, we've spent so much money on development that we could take this tech and use it anywhere in this country, pretty sort of with minimal set up. So it's just helped us so much as a researcher committed to translating and scaling out good things. I really feel it helps us push stuff like that. So it starts in Allegheny, then it's that's in Pittsburgh, then it's going to be picking up in Philadelphia. And it has jumped also across the country to California. That's just neat, right? So instead, Colorado as well. So not in Philadelphia. I'm having the meeting of counties around the state of Pennsylvania. It's gone to LA. It's gone to count three counties now, four counties I think in Colorado. And similar kinds of results in all of these places that it's improving outcomes on both margins, making you less likely to intervene with families that don't need it, and more likely to intervene with families who do need that help. Yeah, the so far the evaluations. So Stanford did one of Allegheny. We have one a randomized control trial from two counties in Colorado, both saying the same saying the same thing. The LA certainly looks very promising. Mm. Oh, that's really neat. There, there's just so many other examples you can point to in this kind of innovation, right? So one of my favorite ones is the twenty four seven regime that came up in South South Dakota. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one. It's just you get these wonderful little experiments that just happen because of American federalism. So there, there was one judge who had seen, he had a lot of problems with repeat drink drivers and alcohol-related offending. So he started putting in a condition on probation or parole that they would have to either come into the police station and blow a zero on a breathalyzer twice a day, which would be a big hassle, or wear a monitoring bracelet against alcohol use. So it's a, a no, no drinking condition. That was combined with a, well, if you were caught drinking when you're on the condition, you'd spend a night in the cells over the weekend. That is about it. But it was the certainty of swift punishment, very short duration, 
that kept people on the straight and narrow. So Mark Kleiman did some work on it, looking at the extension into Hawaii. He'd come to New Zealand and talked about it. Said there that when, when that kind of approach shifted over to Hawaii, you had people who were coming off probation parole asking, could you just keep me on the system? Because it's really helping to keep me on the straight and narrow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's a great endorsement. Encouraging. But yeah. in the South Dakota case, it started with the one judge who then started telling his friends about it because it was seeming to work for him. And they started yeah. implementing it. It rolled out and rolled out. And yeah. eventually, well, that led the RAND Corporation to be able to do some evaluation work on it. And they showed that it wasn't just reducing repeat drink driving. It was also reducing domestic abuse because the same wow. people whose dysfunctional relationship with alcohol led them to repeat drink driving, they were also beating up their families and mm -hmm. keeping them away from it. That, well, it had helped along a lot of margins, right? Little local innovation yes. starts spreading because other people see it, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. it gets it can jump states. It's just I, I love how that works, and I wish that New Zealand could have a bit more of that kind of local experimentation kind of route. Yes, absolutely. I think as far as people have that attitude to want to do things that are working. I mean, I, there's two pieces that you're sharing with me, I think, Eric. One is innovation. The other is that people are looking around for better ways to do what they're doing and not being parochial. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm asking you, do you think in New Zealand just allowing decentralization will give us, get us there? I think you also need better incentive frameworks around local government. So it's easy to have parochialism now where a council that innovates or does something cool will face all of the costs of having done so, but all of the benefits wind up going to central government, right? So imagine if some of the kind of work that you're doing were devolved down to a local government level. Well, if there's a one-third drop in hospitalization, well, the benefits of that go to the Ministry of Health's budget, right? That has nothing to do with the mm. local council. Mm. If there's less need for police intervention, well, that's a reduction in policing costs for central government. They all, the incentives work against local councils trying this kind of stuff. You'd need real heroes to try and push for it because the incentives work against them. It would be better to set a system so that you didn't require heroism for people to be trying this stuff. But it also requires the the followers to the people willing to adopt other people's ideas. And I have this feeling that in New Zealand, if it's not in your, you, your team or your hospital or your DHB hasn't come up with this idea, then you're not going to go. Because I didn't see a lot of that in the yeah. DHBs. I don't know. Maybe I didn't study it carefully enough. I didn't see. We had a kind of federalism right in the dhbs each one allowed to do their own thing i didn't see a lot of innovation but i i guess i mean people did say canterbury was very yep. innovative so maybe but i didn't hear a lot of people following the canterbury model but maybe they did i don't know no you're right canterbury was doing some neat stuff trying to intervene to prevent ed presentations mm -hmm. they were doing neat stuff getting nurses out to help people in their homes to reduce risk that they would show up in ed but I'm not familiar with that having spread around. The The overall system isn't really conducive to it. So even when you do have the, the ability for local pockets of innovation, you then need some pressure within the local community to adopt better practice, right? And 
it's just hard for people to notice these things. I, in when you look to the local government space for a while, local government New Zealand, I think they're still doing it. They ran these benchmarking exercises where councils would come in, they would get evaluated on a bunch of fiscal administrative measures and ranked. So they'd be able to tell their voters, well, actually we're doing very well, or okay, well, voters find out that there's some need for improvement. Well, some councils just don't participate if they're expecting that the results are going to be poor and voters seem not to really care too much. Perhaps it's because local councils just don't have that much authority. So if council's screwing up, well, you're just expecting the council screw up and it's within a fairly limited remit, but it is pretty depressing. Yeah, yeah. But truly, truly, this work could have gone forward in New Zealand. I think if I had... If, for example, Oranga Tamariki was decentralized, because when I look back into how did I build an hospital readmission model, I built it just for the three hospitals and I deployed it for Auckland, Waitemata and counties because I didn't need to get everyone on board. I just got those three hospitals on DHBs on board and they said they want to do it. I did it. And then actually now I think about it, Marlborough wanted it. So they asked me to redo it for down south. So, you know, I was doing this hospital readmission work when I first came to this. And I think that's a really, actually, now I think about it, you're quite right, Eric. It did start spreading. Oh, great. Oh, good, good. Well, that's encouraging. It's, it's a shame that we've not picked up some of the other parts of the model. Now, you were talking in our last chat a little bit as well about the integrated data infrastructure and the differences between sort of a research backend data linkages setup and one that's used for operational purposes. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that I, I kind of get the distinction, but help help us through that. Yeah, I mean, this might be a bit geeky for your listeners, so I do apologize. But essentially, if you think of the what we have in New Zealand is called the integrated data infrastructure, which is really world beating. What we do is we take all of the data from healthcare system, from Oranga Tamariki, from prison systems, and we link it all up so that people like Eric and I, who are kind of researchers, we can go into a lab and look at how families interact with the system, how things, outcomes happen. And we can actually play around and say, hey, you know, at the time a child first comes into this system, I can predict if in the five, next five years, they're going to end up being removed from home or hospitalized for abuse. However, having done that, could I go out into the world and say, hey, I've got a model here that grabs all of these different pieces of information and helps you predict, I couldn't. Because what we don't have in New Zealand is integration for operations, which is where if someone walks into Orangatamariki office, those workers cannot see that child's history in systems like healthcare or truancy or see anything else. We are not allowing any workers on one part of the system to see information about their clients in other parts of the system. That is integration for operations, and we don't have that. And that's a whole different story because – um, frontline people don't, a lot of communities don't like integration for operation. And I was actually on a government committee called the Data Futures Working Group, which Bill English set up to try to get the social license and conversation about how to integrate data. And it was really interesting. I remember one of the 
sessions. We had 40 workshops across the country with communities. And one of them was in City Mission, which was sort of mainly, you know, folks with who are rough housing or something. And I still remember one chap saying, actually, I would like the police to have my mental health history because when I have a manic episode, the police treat me as if I'm on drugs, but I'm not. I've actually got bipolar. And so if they could look up my diagnosis before they approached me or they knew that I was bipolar, it would help the way in which they would be able to approach me. In particular, they might be able to reach out to my key worker and say, hey, you know, I need to connect with you because this person is having a manic episode on the street or something. So I thought that was quite interesting. A lot of the people that I have found who oppose data integration will often speak about opposing it on behalf of other people, not necessarily on behalf of themselves. So one of the things I'm really keen on is that we don't shape policy on the basis of hearsay. We shape policy on the basis of speaking to people who are most directly affected and most vulnerable in the communities that we want to integrate data for, not people who represent them. So IDI has a lot of constraints on the operational use of data, but different ministries and agencies could come to side agreements on data sharing amongst themselves for operational purposes if they They wanted to. And moving to that operational side is probably needed to fully get towards the kinds of things that Bill English was talking about in the investment approach that you'd be wanting to intervene in these ways to make sure that you're getting the most well-being benefits out of every dollar of public expenditure or every intervention that the state makes. Have we been seeing any pushes towards greater operational integration back end among agencies here since? I haven't seen anything. I haven't been intimately connected with this work since the in the new government, but I haven't seen anything, no. Yeah, because in our last chat, you talked about Minister Tolley having kind of knifed the work that you'd started on child protection services here, trying to get a better predictive model to a better intervention, making sure that it's done where needed and not where it's not needed. But that that was a long time ago, and it's felt, at least from my view, that the incoming Labour government was even more hostile to those kinds of approaches where... It's at least on my side, it's felt as though when Bill English was talking about this stuff, he was often using fiscal language to make sure that his national party colleagues were on side, that he was saying, look, this stuff is going to reduce the long-term burden for the state because people who have better lives need fewer interventions, right? They're going to have fewer harms, fewer interactions with the state later. So it's all going to come out good on the, on the book side. That language, I think, was needed to keep national on side, on the flip side, I think Labour was hearing that as a, the only thing we care about is reducing the deficit and we're only going to intervene if it reduces the long-term deficit, rather than what I think English intended was that this is a marker of harm reduction and well-being augmentation. And he's taking it as just a kind of a ruler for measurement. And it seemed to all be thrown out by Minister Cepoloni when she came in. Even at the time, Eric, I felt... I could understand why Minister English or Prime uh, Prime Minister at the time was trying to make that case. I think it was mishandled, the communication, by even some of his ministers who started speaking about the million-dollar families or that, you know, these sorts of 
headliners yeah. just were not respecting the the complexity of the families. Like I think reducing people to these sort of data summaries is something you do as part of policy development, but not as part of communicating the why. The why has to be communicated, not with data, but with specific stories. You know, the why at the time was, and Dame Diane, who was the ex-city missioner, was had fantastic stories of people who were very deeply engaged with the city mission, who would go to prison who would say to the people, I want City Mission to be told when I get discharged, they get discharged or they leave prison. No one tells City Mission. So they're left on the street with no supports until City Mission learns a few days later and then goes and, you know, gets them set up with a house or something. So these are the kind of simple stories of lack of data integration that drive communities to accept that there's value in it. It's I don't think communities see value by you quoting yeah. dollars. That's not how a community would see value. They'd see value with stories of terrible examples of poor service because we haven't appropriately integrated data. So I do feel like I think if the if the communication had been slightly different, I think maybe Hamel Cipollone's administration would have continued it because they would have seen that the people who really were losing out from lack of data integration were the most vulnerable, were the people with very high interactions with government. Yeah. And yet, so it's interesting for me. And I don't want us to complicate, confound the work that I'm doing with data integration. To be clear, we are working in counties where there is no data integration. I can guarantee you today, I could go into, well, not guarantee, but you know, okay, guarantee to you, Eric, because yeah. you'll never call me on it. I could go to Orangatamariki and probably build exactly what we've got in these other counties that are showing an f- impact just using Orangatamariki data. Using data better. It's wonderful. And going back to the investment approach a little bit, I'd always seen that as a way of getting the kind of contestability and sort of local innovation that you do get in the U.S. federalist system because you had opportunity there for an NGO to put in bids for improving outcomes. So sort of classic examples that they were using at the time were, well, if an NGO is able to help single mothers get back into work or engage with education or reduce recidivism rates among outgoing prisoners, then they could be funded on the basis of those successes. And that kind of de-risks things a little bit for the state because it's an NGO that's trying something. And NGOs are always trying things anyways, but this would be a way of evaluating whether it works and then letting it scale up if it does. It seemed really promising in that way. I agree, but I think we don't have a good culture of holding those local kind of initiatives to account. I'm thinking of the South Auckland initiative. I don't know if you know, but under Bill English and the Social Investment Unit, there was an attempt to try a South Auckland initiative, as it was called. I went to a bunch of meetings around that work. Again, they were trying that. They were saying, could we bring all of the groups together around South Auckland, start data sharing, start trying to put services together. 
But I think it just became a scrabble of individual services for money. They could see money going and they thought, let me grab a bit of that. You know, that's the kind of usual fallback position of agencies in New Zealand. It's just, how can I get a slice of that pie? And the reason that they think they can do that and get away with it is because we don't have really strong contracting arm that'll come and say, we're going to take your money away because you didn't do what you said you would do. Like that is the level of, you know, you should be at risk. If you're an agency that signed up for the South Auckland initiative and to five years later, I find you haven't done what you said, you should as the South Auckland counties Manica have to give me that money back. New Zealand, we never require that. And therefore, some of these local initiatives fail. That's my feeling. Like there's no, not enough strong understanding of the accountability mechanism. The money just dissipates. No one asks for it back. Yeah, I guess they come up with different ways of setting up contracts for risk sharing and who's the best bearer of the risk in particular circumstances. But yeah, there are huge problems in getting procurement capacity in those kinds of performance-based contracting measures in the public sector. It seemed to be one of the barriers back under the prior national government, and that capacity hasn't really built up under the current government either. That's right, because it's a central capacity to hold local groups to account, and the local minister doesn't want them held to account, if you see what I mean. If you've got it under a performance evaluation metric and you are demonstrating what works and what doesn't, that seems part of the bargain, right? So just pulling money away from an organization that's working in the local community, if there's been no metrics around it, well, that can be hard, right? But if there's been lots of metrics around it and there's a neighboring group that's been doing spectacularly, you can say, well, let's look, look, look at these two. One of them is not really doing very much or not like they're trying real hard, but they're not achieving much. The other one is really helping the, the, the families that they deal with. We want to be getting money to the ones that are that are successful, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about binding the hands of the mm-hmm. central government agency, almost requiring them to be obliged to get the money back unless they can show that this contract has delivered. It's sort of, they have to go and say, look, I've got no call in this. I have to take that money back because you haven't delivered the things. It's sort of, unless we can do something very, you know, strong and self committing of all the agencies about this bottom agency that we're trying to get to do good things, it just breaks down and we don't have a culture of accountability from top to bottom. Well, we've got an awful lot of work to do, Rima. I think it's really, I mean, I think the next time we go for this, Eric, and I'm hope I'm calling us as like yeah. the community of scholars and people who think data integration is a good idea. The next time we go for this, there will be a lot more interest and acceptability. And to be honest, like as a group, we have learned so much that I really feel quite optimistic that I think the data piece is a piece that can help agencies like Oranga Tamariki. I really do. And I, I do feel like if it's not me, you know, personally, but I do feel this kind of approach is one that whatever stripe of government they're going to want to have to do, they're going to have to do it. So they're going to they're going to start sooner or later realize that it's just not acceptable for, you know, in the 21st century for our work, frontline workers not to have the best data tools they can have to make decisions with 
really difficult decisions. Yeah, and it seems the classic Kiwi thing where uh, we can't do something unless it's been proven to work abroad, even if it's the same Kiwis doing the work abroad before <laughs> we ever allow it, allow it to work here. Just nuts. But thank That's you. harsh. Thank no. but probably true. I don't know. I like not to think that. <laughs> uh, yeah. But now we do have that example. We've got the data to back it up. We know we can do better. It's just, well, it's very frustrating when the stakes are kids who are getting beaten and thrown into hospital because of it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's the thing that keeps me motivated. Mm. Thank you so much, Rima. This has been fascinating. And we'll have to be in touch again when you're doing more interesting things. And after things prove up in Philadelphia. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you, Rima. Thank you, listeners. Tune in next time.